Making cannabis products for yourself or your arthritic grandmother is one thing, but making cannabis products for the public is a whole different world. Not only are you way more likely to get sued if you make a mistake, but selling cannabis products commercially means that you need to adhere to a wide range of standards. These standards are generally manifested in a hodgepodge way through state experimentation, product failures, and everyone's fear of violating the Cole Memo. None of those methods will necessarily derive scientifically accurate manufacturing standards for cannabis products, though. It's a mess. If you enjoy hearing frank discussions that dive deep into cannabis health, business, and technique, I encourage you to subscribe to our newsletter. Every week, you'll receive a new podcast episode delivered right to your inbox, along with commentary on a couple of the most important news items from the week and videos, too. Don't rely on social media to let you know when a new episode is published. Sign up for the updates to make sure you don't miss an episode. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and I am your host, Shango Lose. Today, my guest is Jehan Marku. Jehan Marku is Chief Scientific Officer and Chief Auditor for Americans for Safe Access and the Patient Focused Certification Program. He's also on the Board of Directors of the International Association for Cannabinoids as Medicine. He received his PhD for significant contributions to the study of the structure and function of the CB1 receptor and the role of the endocannabinoid system in bone. Before earning his PhD, Dr. Marcou worked at the California Pacific Medical Center Research Institute studying the anti-cancer properties of compounds from the cannabis plant. He serves on multiple government and trade association committees and scientific organization. Jehan's work has appeared in a wide range of media, including Forbes, The Washington Post, and Vice. He's also, also an author of the American Herbal Pharmacopoeia Cannabis Monograph. Jehan Marku was the first recipient of the Billy Martin Research Award from the International Cannabinoid Research Society, and he is a court-qualified synthetic cannabinoid and cannabis expert. Welcome to the show, Jehan. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So, you know, in the early days of medical cannabis in Colorado and Washington and Oregon and California, there were pretty much zero production standards and, and few best practices. Um, everything was being made in, you know, kitchens and spare rooms in people's homes. And, and most of it was made with care, but still most of the products were not potency tested. And I, I even toured one production facility that, that had a chicken as a pet indoors, which was crazy. And, and part of the push for more full legalization was because everyone wanted to increase quality standards and make products more uniform. You know, what do you see as the early motivators for cannabis folks to standardize and improve quality? There were a number of things um, that were putting pressure on cannabis providers at the time. You know, one was doctors' confidence in the products. You know, and, and when we first saw California and other states come online with their medical programs between 1996 and then starting in 2002 when Americans for Safe Access first helped create um, the distribution and access centers in Oakland, California by passing those early regulations. You're right, there was no, there was no required testing and things like that, but it became quickly evident that physicians which there were only a handful at the time writing recommendations, weren't really that comfortable with recommending a product that they did of an unknown consistency or safety um, and, and unclear about what education their patients were receiving before consuming these products. And at the time, while uh, physicians were recommending this in a, in a very small number of them, 
Um, they, they were also concerned about their own education. And so we kind of approached it from that way. The second thing that happened was the DEA's denial of a rescheduling hearing happened around the turn of the century, one of the several at this point. And we read that as a roadmap. Most people probably didn't read the full few hundred page reports, but I've, I've read all of them. <laughs> and, you know, what they said is there's these seven factors, there's these eight factors that cannabis has to fulfill to be rescheduled. And one of them was there are no standards of production, distribution, safety. There aren't studies um, or, you know, on a lot of the products that people are accessing uh, there is an education or training and things like this. We're like, oh, well, why don't we address those things? Thank you, DEA, for telling us what we need to do. And so Steph Shear, the executive director of ASA, engaged in this really amazing campaign more than 10 years ago to bring in standards groups. And these were years-long conversation with the American Herbal Pharmacopeia and the American Herbal Products Association. And we began working on the American Herbal Pharmacopeia Cannabis Monograph. And at the time, there were no standards. And so we created this monograph with people like Ethan Russo and Mahmoud Al-Soli. Uh, Raphael Mishulam was a reviewer of the document as well, and many, many other people. I think about 30 people in total reviewed the monograph that uh, myself and several other people drafted. And that readily got adopted across the states. You know, there's so there's so much catch twenty two in that, right? The DEA is all like, you know, we don't want to take it off schedule one, which would allow people to use it for research until that there are standards, and the standards they they'd have to come from research. So you're you're put in this position where you need to start really small and kind of back into it. Yeah, and the great thing is, is that the University of Mississippi has been producing cannabis uh, for decades that people with compromised immune systems have been using without ever having a recall of their product. You know, there are occasional adverse events reported. Now, say what you want about the specifications of the products. Not everyone's a big fan of there being stems and seeds and pulverized material, but it still met standards for use in, in vulnerable populations. And we've seen decades. Some people, to this day, through the, the old federal IND program, are receiving 300 pre-rolled cannabis cigarettes a month and... You know, Irv Rosenfeld, who's one of them, has never, you know, his doctor has not as yet to report, you know, him getting lung infections or having any serious illnesses. So in some sense, we know that the, the cultivation and production can be standardized. And what standardized really means is that the variability is known and you have a range, a target you're trying to hit. And if you don't know what your range or your variability is in your product, you probably don't know what you're doing. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't have product specifications, how do you know that's your product? And simple things like that can really make a huge difference in the confidence that physicians might have and patients might have. Because you don't just have to win over the patients. They're grasping at whatever is available to treat their symptoms, to, to improve their conditions. But their caregivers are often the ones who are accessing those products, administering those products, and, and making uh, critical thinking decisions about whether or not that product is safe and appropriate for their loved ones. And so by increasing confidence 
um, in these products is by adhering to voluntary consensus standards. Now, every industry has pretty much created its own standards. The people who are involved, the stakeholders, the interested parties get together and create standards. And that's what we did with the American Herbal Products Association, which is a really amazing um, organization. Our standards are also public. And so we mentioned the monograph, which creates, if you want to call this a botanical medicine or herbal supplement or something like that, follow these standards to meet, you know, meet these specifications, meet these guidelines, and you're you're making a product that, that fits that definition. Likewise, you also have the operations. The operations need trained staff. They need to be clean. Uh, it's Americans for safe uh, access, right? So uh, making sure that you're ensuring that for patients is really important. And so with the American Herbal Products Association, we decided to form these committees with them for cultivation, manufacturing, uh, laboratory tents, testing, and dispensing. And over eight years, with involvement of over 100 cannabis companies, we created standards. And when these were published, they were readily adopted by over 20 states. And for the first time, we saw recall plans, adverse events reporting, lab testing, and mandatory employee training. And, and this has also been, a, I think, a game changer for a lot of folks. So let's let's talk for a moment about the, the the people involved with making the standards. Obviously, Americans for Safe Access was was driving this pursuit, but you were talking about lots of different people coming in from different parts of the industry to create this voluntary consensus standard. And you know, when there are so many different players with a, ver a wide variety of approaches and opinions. How does a nascent industry like ours derive a set of standards that somehow incorporates the body of knowledge of all the people involved? I mean, you, you get together a bunch of cannabis people, and there's usually as many opinions as there are people in the room. So, um, you know, w without going too much into the methodology, how did you find that the, that the group opinion uh, somehow melded together to, to come up with a singular best practice? That, that's a great question, and I think first I'd like to illustrate it with what the herbal products and botanical medicine industry has done in the U.S. and how they have come together, because even within existing botanical medicines and herbal supplements, they're, not all those companies adhere to the same standards. Some are, some are less robust in the health and safety practices they take than others. Um, you know, I think there was... A recent expose, for example, at a major shopping outlet, um, like a Target or something like that, uh, the herbal supplements had very little to no active ingredients. You know, and we see the same thing with some of the CBD products that people are, are selling on the Internet is that they have 0.00% CBD in them sometimes. And this is something that a lot of independent groups have looked at. Um, and so what I'd like to use as an example of how the industry can get galvanized um, is oftentimes for survival. And in the 1990s, when APA really became a prominent player, the, the, the standards holding group for the patient-focused certification program, um, you know, Larry Kessler, the then head of the FDA, made a, an announcement without a strategic plan for it that he was going to make all vitamins uh, illegal and supplements that didn't have a letter or number in their name. So like vitamin E would be okay, B12 would be okay, but say goodbye to your ginkgo biloba extract or wow. potentially essential oils, things like that. And as you can imagine, 
uh, this galvanized an industry in a way that had never been seen before. And so the FDA, through a decades-long process of, of, of gaining power, made a huge power play here. Um, and what ended up happening was is that the herbal products manufacturers and industry be launched the most successful grassroots campaign in the history of the United States. All health food stores across the country, uh, stores that sold herbal supplements, vitamins, botanical medicines, um, put caution tape and tarps and things over the supplements, uh, those sections, and said, you know, if you want to have, this is what the FDA wants to do, is take away uh, your ability to choose um, your medicines, to choose your herbal supplements and things like that. And in between 1993 to 1994, Congress received more letters about the right to choose your own botanical medicines and herbal supplements than any other issue. The peace, the federal deficit, war, uh, you name it, uh, that was the issue. And the FDA called APA and said, we give up, let's write a bill. And they wrote the Dietary Health and Supplement Education Act, or DSHEA. Now, this created standards for labeling of herbal products. Um, shortly thereafter, there was also the good manufacturing practices laws that passed as well. Uh, and this gave the industry a group of standards. And not, still to this day, many, many, there are many great players in the botanical medicine and herbal product space, but there's also a lot of characters who decide not to engage in that or create their own standards group and, or you know, what have you. But the idea is it gives a path forward for those people who are thinking ahead. And I think that for the cannabis world, it was, well, there are no standards. My regulations in my state haven't caught up. But I immediately, you know, a lot of companies see the validity and value of taking on uh, national standards or voluntary standards, even if they're not required in their state. You know, to give you an example, um, you know, medical cannabis is not required to be tested in Colorado, but there are many companies that engage in product safety testing um, for their for their patients. Yeah, it becomes a market differentiator. They're able to use it in marketing to say, hey, we we adhere to a higher level of quality assurance. Yeah, and, and those are the places I think that will stay open. Um, you know, one of my uh, mentors uh, said to me, you know, you, you're like the world's luckiest paleontologist. And I said, well, what do you mean? And, and she said, well, you get to walk with the dinosaurs. Oh. You know, you, you, in 10, 20 years, no one's going to believe you that there were these huge, big, lumbering companies. And much like the dinosaurs, the environment was very different then than it is now. Um, and so I think when we think about changes in regulations, you know, what is going to survive uh, these changes in development of regulations. I mean, on the East Coast, what I'm seeing with my work, uh, you know, changes gears a little bit, is with um, doing regulatory inspection trainings and writing checklists for regulators and working with our contracts we have with uh, the program administrators. You know, they are getting very serious about compliance, not just with the cannabis regulations, but worker safety issues too. Um, and we're seeing you know, cannabis operations around the country getting now getting inspected, even though they're federally illegal, getting inspected by state agencies. And even though state agencies having nothing to do with cannabis are issuing fines, especially for worker safety violations and, and dangerous 
uh, environments, which could simply be that you don't have a fire evacuation map on the wall and, and little things like that that you would expect from any other employer you went to work with. Now, there are a lot of good players out there, and we cannot sit around and highlight and point out the bad guys. But I think what we can do with standards and third-party certification is easily highlight the people who are doing things right, who are doing a good job. And I think that's the power of this. Like you said, it differentiates people. And I think the key to acceptance of cannabis and getting over these walls that are that are that are keep popping up um, is the standardization of products. Is applying these standards is appropriately testing your products. Um, you know, I, I sometimes think that someday there's going to be a cultivator or a manufacturer that's going to get really upset when someone brings them an inflated THC reading from a lab and they're paying for thousands of dollars of milligrams of THC that simply aren't there in the product. And I think that as things move forward and get more regulated, the accuracy of lab testing, the reliability of labs, the reliability of sample collection, representative sampling of products, of standardization of processes is not just going to become an issue of quality, but it will be a very serious economic issue. Um, we're already seeing that in extraction vessels, which again, a lot of seen a lot of groups that don't uh, that can't predict um, their yields from doing an extraction process. You know, they just say, "Oh, I got a lot this time." I'm like, well, <laughs> as far as I know, a lot isn't really a quantifiable number. A lot compared to what? And so, I think you know, people are always surprised. And one of the things that I've done in my own independent research field as I look at a lot of cannabis waste and there's so much valuable stuff that simply isn't extracted fully uh, that is thrown away and sometimes regulations do do interfere with some of these processes like I'd like to see more people looking at cannabis roots but some states make you throw that away yeah. um, so so I think there's a lot of opportunities in innovation and in increasing efficiency and overall product safety as well. And again, a lot of this hinges on a couple of things is access to those educational materials. Um, you know, we, uh, Americans for Safe Access helped design a study on dispensary staff training, which was published in uh, 2016 in December by Ryan Vandry and Marcel Von Miller. And what they uh, showed was that a lot of dispensary staff don't have science or medicine, you know, uh, incorporated into their training. And, and let me illustrate something for you, you know, to set the stage, you know, uh, the thing that I worry about, you know, is imagine if, this is for example, I had, you know, so aggressive cancer and I had to, was new to cannabis and I went into a dispensary and I really have just three things to guide my choice about a medicine for my treatment. One is a strain or variety name. <laughs> Another one is a potency level right? How much THC or CBD is in the product. And the third thing is something that says, you know, keep out of reach of children or do not consume while driving. That's really, you know, all the information that you might have when making a very important decision. So the quality of training of the dispensary staff or the ambassadors of these products, right? They're not producing the products. They're not cultivating the products. Most of the dispensary staff has probably never been inside a manufacturing facility for cannabis. And so, it becomes really important that they understand from seed to production what is important in these products. And we found that, um, 
you know, most, something like 30 to 40% had no science and medical background. We had them over a phone interview make recommendations uh, like, okay, you have a patient coming in with high anxiety. What would you recommend in this instance? Knowing that, you know, you're not supposed to make recommendations, you know, strictly like uh, you got to be careful about that. But this was, again, a survey and kind of testing their knowledge about the products. And, you know, there were some you know, interesting findings. And one was that when we had the statements anonymous from the, the dispensary agents reviewed by physicians, by a panel of physicians, and about half the recommendations the physicians thought would have exacerbated a patient's symptoms instead of improved them. And that was concerning. For example, if someone comes in with saying they have appetite wasting or anorexia or HIVAs and they need to improve their appetite, and someone recommends a CBD-rich product which does not stimulate cannabinoid receptors, so it will not make you hungry. And so that would not have improved someone's um, <laughs> symptoms. You know, and CBD can also be alerting, and so if someone's looking for something that's going to put them, help them sleep better, it's debatable whether or not something rich in cannabidiol um, alone would be the best choice. Um, just to give you some conceptual examples to work with. Sure. I actually run into that all the time with, uh, with patients who are taking uh, CBD for pain and they want to take it at night for the pain. Um, but, but then it, it causes them to, uh, you know, to feel a little stimulated and have a hard time going to sleep. And so, you know, we move, we move their CBD to the front part of the day and, and give them, uh, yeah. you know, something with light THC from, dare I call it an indica, you know, um, strain <laughs> and, 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 you know, it helps them with their insomnia, but Hey, we're a little late for our first uh, break. So let's go ahead and take our short break. It's also very uh, funny to listen to the background. I know that you're in, you're at your place in, uh, there in Brooklyn and it sounds, you can really get a sense of place. It sounds like kids <laughs> outside playing hopscotch or whatever they're doing. Uh, yeah. I live in uh, crown Heights and there's actually a, a rabbi down the road for me he has a big family, but he's also one of the medical candidates. Uh, recommending physicians in New York. <laughs> <laughs> right, I agree. So let's go ahead and take that short break and be right back. Uh, you're listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Jehan Marcoux, a Chief Science Officer at Americans for Safe Access. We humans are attracted to plants because they offer us relief and are a whole lot of fun. Sometimes, though, the best parts are buried inside the plant, and we need to use specialty extraction technology. When it comes to cannabis, it is extraordinarily important to extract its precious oils without changing them in the process. We want to preserve the properties of the cannabinoids, terpenes, and other constituents that all work together. Since 1994, Eden Labs has been developing extraction technology and processes to do just that. Eden Labs was founded by a cannabis-loving engineer during the early days of medical marijuana in California, and the expanded Eden team has been designing and building industry-leading solutions for cannabis extraction ever since. Eden Labs' flagship product is the newly improved high-flow CO2 extractor. As other extraction companies enter the market, it is the high-flow from Eden Labs that everyone chases and tries to compare themselves with. Not only that, but the improved automation software allows data to be collected, stored, and studied. Eden Labs can outfit your whole lab. Eden's Cold Finger Ethanol Extractor creates astonishing whole plant extracts working alone or in tandem with an initial stream distilling step to isolate monoterpenes before extracting the rest of the botanical constituents. 
Eden offers you many options, including vacuum distillation, column distilling, stirred reactor units, and accelerated solvent recovery. When you partner with Eden Labs, your lab team is enrolled into the Eden Labs training program to boost their understanding of Eden's best practices to ensure that your outputs are exactly what you require for your application, whether it be dab oil, oil for pen cartridges, or edibles. When you work with Eden, you're not just buying the tech, you're buying dedicated customer support to help you attain your business goals too. You can hear Eden's CEO, A.C. Braddock, talk about the company's values during Shaping Fire episode 19 that was all about CO2 extraction. So many of the new companies in the market just smell opportunity, slap an extractor together, and hire a marketing company. Eden Labs has been listening to feedback from extractors and consumers for about 25 years now. They care about both you and your consumer. Partner with Eden Labs to extract astonishing cannabis oils and terpenes that you will be proud of. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Eden to find out more. Did you know that Shaping Fire has a fabulous YouTube channel? When I attend conventions to speak or moderate panels, I always record them and bring the content home for you to watch. The Shango Los YouTube channel has world-class speakers, including Kevin Jodry of Wonderland Nursery talking about breeding cannabis for the best terpene profile, Dr. Sunil Agarwal on the history of cannabis medicine around the world, Tad Hussey of Keep It Simple Organics on living soil, microbes, and mycelium, and Ben Cassidy of True Terpenes on using terpenes for health in your everyday life, and Reggie Godino of Steep Hill on the cannabis genome. There are several presentations from Dr. Ethan Russo on terpenes, the endocannabinoid system, and holistic orcharding, and even my own presentations on how to approach finding your dream job in cannabis and why we choose cannabis business even though the risks are so high. As of today, there are over 50 videos you can check out for free. Go to youtube.com forward slash shangolos or click on the link in this week's newsletter. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is Jehan Marku, Chief Science Officer at Americans for Safe Access. So we talked during the first set about some of the best practices that have started to become industry standards and where those standards are even coming from. And one of the things I think a lot about is the contrast between processing enough for uh, uniformity of the product um, so it meets a standard versus the importance of whole plant medicine. And, and, and by whole plant medicine, of course, I mean preserving all the, the cannabis constituents as a whole group in the final product so the patient can take advantage of the entourage effect for you know both human healing and you know a quality buzz too. The, the more we process, the more we seem to break up the plant into its discrete parts, thus moving away from whole plant. And I'm sure that you've had to give this a lot of thought in developing these standards. So, so where do you kind of think through this for yourself to find a happy medium between repeatable results of a product, but also being whole plant since that's where all of the really good cannabis studies are based on? Yeah, I mean, um, well, so I've been injecting cannabis into various instruments and applying it to cells for, for, a, for a fair amount of time. And I quickly realized this issue just within my own hands because, uh, you know, I was having to generate data and, you know, on just a simple student level and present it to other people. And I was working with uh, an internship with Arno Hazekamp, which seems like a lifetime ago. 
where I had to like ride a bicycle and pick up samples from a coffee shop as part of a, a product safety study and analyze those in the lab at the University of Leiden in Holland. And I quickly found out that, wow, you know, ethanol versus um, other solvents like ether um, or sodium hydroxide really uh, could change what you were looking at. Like you could use solvents um, in a setup where you could actually remove the acids from the extraction or you could favor the extraction of some other terpenes. And this is like something we're seeing now I think is affecting testing is like people are like, oh, the labs are getting it wrong. I'm like, well, sometimes it's the user error there. Um, but also when we do a targeted analysis, like saying we just want to look at cannabinoids and you extract for those, nothing comes out entirely unscathed. You're going to have an efficiency there. And some research that we've done over in the Czech Republic comparing different, uh, very recently comparing different um, solvents and extraction processes, we found like, holy cow, like, oh, wow, if you use methanol over ethanol, you're going to favor certain terpenes. And so what I think people need to start thinking about is what they're testing for. And so you have a targeted approach, which is like, I want to test for THC. And then you can have non-targeted, which is, I just want to see everything that's there before I begin the targeted approach. And, you know, when we talk about losing compounds and changing things, it's absolutely possible. You could start with one set of powdered flour, like a standardized batch of flour. It's uniform to say, imagine a 50 gallon drum of powdered cannabis and everyone takes a a handful out for a different extraction process to make, say, an oil, you could end up with as many oils as samples you took with different specifications because someone uses a different ratio of methanol and ether or whatever it is that they're extracting in, methanol chloroform, what have you, uh, versus ethanol or CO2. Yeah, you could end up with different products. And then you think about the lab. Well, what are they using to prepare their sample for analysis? Because the lab just doesn't take a cookie and like, oh, this looks good. I'm going to shove this into my $250,000 piece of equipment. That's a great way to like destroy a workhorse in your lab, like just clog it and shut down the system, call it a day. Um, so they have to extract what they want to test out of that. And I think that, um, you know, as we think about manufacturing, we shouldn't think so much about uh, focusing on, um, you know, accuracy is important. But also, what are you making? What are your specifications? You know, people are um, very efficiently using CO2, which I think is one of can be one of the safest extraction methods. But you oftentimes, if you're not super savvy and have 20 years of experience, buy buy terpenes and you have to kind of collect those. But when you add them back to the product, are you adding them back in the same ratio that's in the plant? Um, and so my very first research poster was entitled uh, Plant Wisdom, uh, Cannabidiol Enhances the Anti-Cancer Effects of THC. It was the first thing I ever presented at a research conference. And I developed that idea, of course, from talking with amazing people, reading other people's work, but doing my own analysis. And I had at the time gotten the permission I think enough time has passed, I can talk about this, but uh, at San Francisco State University, I got this very special permission to do a very short-term project studying uh, cannabis through the legal market that had developed there. Um, I was a patient at, a t at the time, which made things less complicated, but essentially it was, you know, I got permission for this one-year project, and what I found 
in my own very small sampling was when I used different extraction methods, I did see slightly different ratios of compounds. But when I used the same extraction method against different samples, I saw there were varying ratios of terpenes and cannabinoids. Now, I didn't quantify everything. I was just doing a non-targeted approach saying, well, what does the fingerprint look like? And can we repeatedly make these fingerprints? And after a while, I was like, wow, there is a difference. I mean, even 10, 15 years ago, you could find amounts of CBD that were 1% to 5% in the cannabis material being distributed in California, but no one was looking for it at the time. And so I brought that data to a lab where I was working and said, hey, you know, I have this chromatography data that looks at ratios. Maybe there's something here. Maybe some of these ratios might be good for treating, a, uh, you know, a certain disease. What do we got? And they said, well, we have these really aggressive brain cancer cells and petri dishes that don't seem to have anything that affects them. Why don't we throw some cannabinoids in there and see what happens? And so rather than start with the, the data that we had from analyzing samples, we started with math and we started, well, let's just add THC in an increasing amount, see what happens. Let's add CBD, let's add CBN, let's add CBG. And then we took amounts of those compounds that really did nothing on the cancer cells and started combining them together. And through mathematics and what's called a bunch of other nerdy statistical stuff I won't go into, um, the paper's already been published, so if you want to look that up. But we found basically that, you know, you could enhance activity with combinations of cannabinoids. And one of the things that uh, came out of that was a four to one ratio of THC to CBD in a petri dish to to inhibit brain cancer cells. And so, you know, if you say we wanted to turn that into a product saying, wow, that looks like something that can affect a very particular type of brain cancer, a very particular molecular pathway could be triggered, you know, that might inform what type of product you want from your specification. If the other cannabinoids are not important and the other terpenoids are not important, then you're going to extract and process for those purposes. And so I think, you know, like my roundabout way of talking about that is, is, you know, there, there can be what's in the plant and there can be what you determine scientifically might be needed for a condition. And those two things are not diametrically opposed through proper extraction, through knowing what you want to get in the end product, you can then choose an appropriate extraction method. Right now, I feel like it's a little bit of like a ready, fire, aim approach. Like, let's put everything into the extractor. I have this, you know, it's, <laughs> you know, some sort of magical filter that separates things out. Um, and so I think when we think about manufacturing, people should have an idea in mind about what they're doing. And I think GW Pharmaceuticals is sort of the, uh, the great conceptual example is they wanted a one-to-one -one ratio of THC to CBD in their product, as well as a high level of certain terpenes that have strong anti-anxiety properties. And so they took their CBD-rich material, made a hash oil extract, took their THC-rich material, made a hash oil extract, and then combined those in ratios. And that sort of thinking, I think, needs to start creeping over into the cannabis industry. You know. You people, patients are taking different strains and combining them to explore their effects. And I would encourage more operators to be more open about what they're making and what they're combining. You know, don't just take all the refuse and throw it in there. Keep track of where that extra material is coming from. Well, these are two different strains um, and things like that. Um, 
I think it's interesting that, <clears throat> excuse me, that, um, you know, you kind of uh, approach the question different or from the opposite direction than I normally do. And, and a lot of the whole plant evangelists that I talk with where, you know, we, we generally look at it as that, okay, um, uh, you know, either, you know, your best would be either smoking or eating the flower itself. There's, there's perfect. Right. And then, and then a step down from that would be, you know, an ethanol soak, which gets, you know, a good amount of everything that's there. And then as you go down, you know, uh, you know, through the hydrocarbons and CO2, um, you're getting, uh, less and less of the whole plantness of it. And, and, and I like your idea that to instead of continually going back to the the plant or the flower as being the goal and to have all the extraction methods and processing methods have to compare themselves to the whole plant instead go the other direction and say okay what is this that you what's the end goal of the product is this a a uh, an intense dab oil for an extreme pain patient um is this is this somebody who needs to get you know just a little bit of you know thc but a whole lot of thca because they're working with lyme's disease or rheumatoid arthritis or something and <clears throat> I think that that approach is actually far more forgiving for designers than the way most of us go about it. And, um, and I think that that opens up some, some new possibilities. So, so let me take this one, this one more, uh, step further then. So some product designers break the cannabis plant into all of its individual constituents and then reblend them as they wish customly. And, and other folks use, um, isolates of components and just sell them as is like the, the, the popularity of, of CBD isolate right now. But, but some use the full extract cannabis oil. There will be very variability in the in the components from run to run, but they're going to be true to the strain behind it. So my question for you is, do you think that there's a place for that variability that's necessary when using whole plant extracts? Because, you know, let's say that I, let's say that I run 10 plants of the same strain and I make, you know, ethanol hash oil out of it and they're all in syringes. There's going to be some drift between syringe, but they really are the pure plant. How do you like resolve that for yourself when doing standards between staying true to the plant versus having repeatable results so the labeling on the package is accurate? Well, first of all, we have um, two things. One, companies have already created standardized products, right, with whole plant flour. Bedrican International, fantastic example of what you can do um, with uh, standardized cultivation procedures and creating uh, standardized um, plant material. So you can make cannabis plant material that will meet pharmaceutical standards. There are some eyebrow-raising things that they do, like gamma irradiate the material, which you know some people don't have a problem with. Some people do. You know, the banana I ate this morning was probably gamma irradiated uh, from the grocery store. Um, so, so you know, there are ability to do it. Uh, Connecticut is a state I like to use too because they have to meet pharmaceutical standards. So when we talk about this drift, it's absolutely possible. But this drift that we talk about, it happens with all natural products. Now, I don't like to often invoke talking about the, the, the alcohol industry, but it can be illuminating and, and informative when we talk about its most close, you know, hops' most closely related relative, the cannabis plant. Um, so uh, breweries 
uh, deal with this similar issues too. Um, and there's a thing called heads, hearts, and tails when you make a batch, a huge batch of beer. Um, and, you know, and that's one of the differences between some types of beer and others. Um, you know, I went to graduate school in, in Pennsylvania. It's a very rich and vibrant beer community there <laughs> of, you know, of, of, vic- of these various um, breweries that people travel from all over to visit. And they deal with the same issue. And But they've done it so much. They've put science in there saying, you know, when we are, some stuff is coming out of the vessel and we're bottling it we're paying attention to those different things because there's certain parts of it you don't want where the sediment has settled or near the top where it might be different or then maybe it needs to be continuously mixed while you're allotting it. And so there are um, lots of other products that have, that are natural that we see around us every day. Um, and I hate to use, you know, company names, but, you know, one of my favorite things to ask people is why is Budweiser the king of beers? Is it because it's delicious and refreshing uh, well, you know, that's questionable, but it's really because it's the same anywhere you open it. You open it in Japan or Paris or, you know, in Tennessee, it's going to be the same product within a certain level of acceptable variation. And I think, you know, thinking about it in broader terms, yeah, if you are, 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 are encapsulating or packaging a batch, there might be certain things you can do to reduce the standards. But that's also why you keep track of batches and also know what part you might want to use. Um, I've seen, you know, extracts uh, that have been sitting for years in um, in storage. Um, you know, I used to work um, under a DA license in the past, and I, I did some really just super fun stuff uh, collaborating with Mahmoud also the University of Sippy used to characterize new cannabinoids he would discover and things like that. And visiting Ole Miss, um, you know, you can see that even extracts that were homogenized after they've been sitting for a while, they will start to separate and you will see this sort of head hearts and tails sort of thing happen, or even a biphasic thing where some of the, you know, fats and stuff go to the top, even just sitting on a shelf over time. Right on. So as far as the drift, you know, with some of the cannabinoids, it's more serious than others, right? If there's, if there's a drift in CBG, unless that's the part of the medicine that you need, you know, the CBG may or may not matter, but with THC, obviously it becomes serious really fast. And, And one of the most serious challenges that edibles makers have is to ensure that each piece has the same dosage. For example, eating the first of 10 cookies in a package, expecting it to be 10 milligrams when it's actually 17 milligrams can be a big deal to many users. So homogenization is a real problem. You know, what best practices do you see the industry adopting so each edible of a particular package is reliably dosed? I think that that comes down to developing a method for um, properly extracting the cannabinoids from your edibles. One thing that has always struck me as weird um, is that, you know, I visit a lot of cannabis labs um, and almost no manufacturer provides a blank of their product for the labs to calibrate to. Like they might provide them the soda or the cookie or the lozenge, but they don't provide them just that matrix. Like, oh, here is what we use so you can create a sample prep method. Wow. And you. And, and so that's part of it, too. And that was an issue when we were doing at a small team and we were traveling between different labs with our equipment. 
um, to to look at edibles. And what we published uh, and threw out into the, the the internets was, hey, if you freeze these products and pulverize them, you can create a powder of almost anything, and then do a more efficient extraction. But still, you know, we ran into the issue where companies uh, could not supply a blank of their product, so that we could spike it with cannabinoids and make sure that we were uh, validating that collection process. So I think that there is one that's aspect of it, which says that you know, I think every every single um, cannabis manufacturer needs an in-house lab. You can't label your own supply, but it can be extremely helpful to check along the production line uh, if you're doing things correctly. So as you go from step A to step B to step C to step D, you're taking measurements of one type or another. Maybe they're organoleptic. Maybe it's a smell and feel thing. Maybe it's a decarboxylation step. And then for the final testing, you send it out to the lab. That is um, what's now, you know, uh, versus the old reactionary method, which is we're going to make something and get a pass-fail at the end, which leads to a lot of waste, a lot of questions about standardization. And, and you know, thin layer chromatography using the silica plates and other um, devices can provide a wealth of information to help guide you in that production process. And so I think uh, for your, if you're trying to develop a better brownie or, or lozenge or, or delivery of any product, you're going to need the in-house lab. It just isn't going to be feasible usually unless you have a very good relationship and they're nearby working with a lab uh, to get those instantaneous results that can feed R&D and give you sort of real-time so you can make adjustments in the processy uh, to make sure you're getting that standardized product. And you also have to determine what makes a batch, right? And I think what you see, you know, people always talk about the, oh, the dog food industry uses like 50 pounds of dog food per batch to do their sampling for quality control. And you tell, you know, oh, yeah, we're going to do 50 pounds of cannabis extract and you're like no way that like is like the price per gold per ounce there's no way we're giving you that uh, it's way too expensive but sometimes something like that and i'm not you know those numbers are conflated but um you know what needs to be understood is that when you first start a product the amount that you have to sacrifice for quality control to establish those limits is vast it's large it's a big wide sampling area and as you say okay look these products are being consistent these products have these specifications you can start to narrow that testing window and make it tighter and tighter and tighter um, until there's issues and then you have to kind of expand it again and so it's kind of like our universe which expands and contracts as should the sampling window to ensure that your you know product safety and consistency and so i think you know if you're say making edible products, you might be sacrificing a batch or two for lab to make sure you have a validated method for that particular edible. Right on. So we're going to take our second short break and re be right back. You are listening to Shaping Fire, and my guest today is Jehan Marku, Chief Science Officer of Americans for Safe Access. Skinny dipping, humpback whales, beatnik poetry, the Ottoman Empire, soil remediation, interdimensional beings, and tree frogs. These are just a few of the interesting topics you can find in the audiobooks library at audible.com. If you like podcasts like Shaping Fire, chances are that you will like audiobooks too. 
Just like with podcasts, audiobooks speak to you, telling you stories and teaching you stuff. Here's the thing. Audible.com has an offer I want to tell you about. Right now, they are offering a trial of their audiobook service for absolutely free. You can go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible and you will get a free audiobook straight up. Listen on your mobile device, computer, or you can download it and listen to it like anywhere. It's really simple. Of course, they want you to subscribe to their service after the free trial and enjoy audiobooks forever, but you don't have to. All you have to do to get the free audiobook of your choice is to check out the service for free. So that's the deal. Your first book is free, it's easy to sign up, it's easy to quit, and their online library of books is pretty incredible. So just check it out. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash audible to find out more, or click on the link in this week's newsletter. As a business owner, you are incredibly busy. In reality, you are responsible for everything your company does. You have so many responsibilities every single day that often you just don't have the time to really dig into something as deeply as you'd like. You know there is more that you could do to reach out to new customers and to encourage loyalty in the customers you already have, but you certainly don't have the time and you're not ready to hire someone full-time for that role either. For you, I recommend Blunt Branding. Blunt Branding principles Kirsten Nelson and Anthony Garcia are focused on improving your bottom line. You know, most marketing firms are excited to make your logo, packaging, and website very pretty. But they leave responsibility for improving your bottom line up to you. They don't want that kind of responsibility. But that is pretty much the most important part of marketing, right? Kirsten and Anthony will help you engage new customers, funnel them to your point of sale, and keep them coming back to you and telling their friends. No doubt, this is a paid commercial spot, but that does not mean they bought my opinion. I've worked with Blunt Branding on three projects now for various clients, and every single time they have done more than they have promised and over-delivered on results. I love how they generate new revenue and focus on that as the goal, instead of just making me a pretty logo. Similarly, every friend I've referred them to has come back to thank me, and that just does not happen every day. So grab a pen and paper because the website address is coming. If you want someone to implement marketing programs that feed your bottom line, give Blunt Branding a call. They will share proven techniques to increase your audience and generate sales while using cutting-edge technology in the background that make all of this easy, automatic, and trackable. Go to shapingfire.com forward slash Blunt Branding to find out more. You can also click the link in our weekly newsletter. Blunt branding, marketing that makes you money. Welcome back. You are listening to Shaping Fire. I'm your host, Shango Los, and our guest this week is Jehan Marku, Chief Science Officer at Americans for Safe Access. So, you know, the the obvious end game for all of these uh, standards outside of just simple patient and consumer safety is that eventually the United States will be able to uh, participate in the the brand new international trade of cannabis and cannabinoids. You know, it, it, it's already starting and the United States is, is quickly falling behind because we're still schedule one. Um, but I know that you work with international groups to, to, to help develop these 
standard standards. And so I'm curious, you know, at this point from the, the, the countries that are just now starting to trade, like, you know, Canada's exporting and such, who is setting the international standards for cannabis now is there a a an international governing body that people are deferring to or is it simply um, country a and country b they're adopting their own standards and they're trading based on that uh, I, the answer is yes and no hmm. um largely who determines the standards and, and international regulations are the people who show up to those meetings and a lot of standards are done through a voluntary consensus process, which means that volunteers, people are giving their time to international standards groups to work on these committees. Um, so, for example, I'm a chairman of the D37 Cannabis uh, Subcommittee uh, uh, under Training, Credentialing, and Assessment. That's the standards I'm working on. Wow, they, with- really, they really gave it a sexy title, didn't they? <laughs> I know, I know. It almost fits on a business card. Uh, but uh, they, <laughs> we're working on an acronym. But, um, you know, and they, they have a dozen other subcommittees that are addressing everything from security to cultivation standards. And it's all run by volunteers at ASTM. And now uh, that's the international level. And in order to get to the international level, the individual players, like the country A, country B, has to develop monographs, right? So the U.S. has a monograph. We've reintroduced cannabis into the pharmacopoeia. Holland uh, has a monograph. Germany has a monograph. Um, And a couple other countries do, which has led Europe to say, okay, well, these countries have standards for their products. Uh, Now we can start to come together and harmonize those across jurisdictional boundaries. And and what we really want to avoid is, uh, you know, politicians – who have no may have no experience in, in well there are very there's like two politicians in our entire country that have a science background but you know most do not have experience with medicine or product safety it's it's they're just kind of doing what sounds good often and so we end up with these really um, incongruent standards and, and where international standards come in is if a group like ASTM which if you don't aren't familiar I, I'd consider a quick internet search save us some time here. But their international standards body create tons of standards. Uh, We've submitted our best practices that we've worked on to help guide this. But as soon as ASTM posts something, countries that don't have any regulations established, which is pretty much a lot of them, will adopt that immediately. And that will probably supplant what's going on. And so when, when we talk about walking with dinosaurs, if you're not paying attention to what's happening with the voluntary consensus standards process, you're going to be hitting a a wall. It's just a matter of time. And developing your own standards at the local level, you know, whether or not that will be even considered by international standards group that all governments look to for guiding their industry is dependent on you finishing those standards and showing up to the meeting where people have been doing this for like a hundred years, developing standards for products. And so I think, um, you know, I, I used to say, I think erroneously or, or maybe misspeaking, saying, you know, I was encouraging people like actually stop creating new cannabis groups. We have so many resources here. But now uh, I feel more like, okay, maybe it's a good thing that we see all these sort of independent groups that aren't talking to each other, but they should be bringing their standards up for peer review. 
And one dangerous trend for me that I see is groups that sell standards to people. Standards are not some secret thing that should be behind paywalls. These should be accessible to everyone so that everyone can understand product safety so they can effectively protect public health um, in in these issues. And I think that uh, participation is essential right now. And looking if even if your your only option is locally, but put pressure on your representatives of that local industry association to participate in ASDM, to participate in OPA or these other groups that are working nationally and internationally. When uh, you, oh, sorry. Go. When, no, go ahead. When, when you when you go when you attend these international meetings where the where the standards are being discussed and <clears throat> and and brought to fruition, are there U.S. government representatives there? Because you know the U.S. has a tendency to um, just poo-poo anything that we were not involved with, and I can imagine <laughs> a world where you know we're all we're all still Schedule Oneing over here, and and this this international body is making these standards, and then if if the U.S. government isn't involved. When we finally get around to uh, descheduling, suddenly you know we'll be like, "Oh, well, we weren't involved with those. Uh, we're going to have to start all over again." And so, my question for you is: is 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 the U.S. government involved in some ways so that when we eventually deschedule, we can slide right in? And the second part of that question is: um, What do you think that we would? Um, uh, need to do to bring our industry in line with those standards so that we could start participating in international trade? Um, well, I think that uh, government representatives will always have a, a arm's length approach to something like this, but it's not to mean that people who don't have experience or um, are showing up as individuals, not representing government agencies there. We do encounter people who work or have worked with the EPA, for example, FDA people. And, you know, the FDA has rotational advisors. You know, you're not just like, oh, I'm working with the FDA. I'm going to work with them for 20 years. Yeah, people say that, but oftentimes they're rotated in and out. Like they work for a year, then they're off for a year. And so, you know, that allows um, some interesting dynamics there. Um, But I think whether or not um, the U.S. government participates and I think it's also worth pointing out that groups like the United States Pharmacopeia, the USP, a lot of people talk about this. That's not a government agency. That's a non-governmental agency. Almost a lot of standard groups are non-governmental agencies. They're, they're independent um, and things like that. Uh, but let's just say, uh, you know, the standards process with ASTM is going to take years to develop and release. Uh, it took us eight years to develop the standards that have been adopted in over 20 states for best practices. And we could see something similar with ASTM, but it's best to start early because even if it remains Schedule 1, I would make a significant bet. <laughs> I'll give you a two-to-one on it um, <laughs> that if ASTM was released to standard tomorrow, it would be rapidly adopted in all the states as uh, saying you must follow standards equivalent to this ASTM standard because it is the international body. Um, and that would supplant a lot of perhaps what they're referencing now in the literature or complement what they're, um, you know, I can give you an example maybe, um, you know, must train employees according to standards by ASTM or must, um, you know, have security practices in line uh, or equal to the standards at ASTM. And um, I think that, you know, whether or not the U.S. is ready for international trade, in some ways it's already happening. GW's Sativex 
Epidolex, do you think they need it rescheduled to get their products in the country? It's their market advantage. You know, the University of Mississippi with their cannabis production, their market advantage uh, right now is, is the Schedule 1 and their single license. And so I think we have to think about a little skeptically is that some groups like pharmaceutical companies may not need it rescheduled to do what they want to do with international trade. You know, cannabis products can't be made here, really, but they can be shipped here, uh, such as, like, again, Sativex and, and licensed pharmaceuticals. So... Um, I think that whether or not it gets rescheduled, uh, people need to be ready for the next wave of standards. Because even if cannabis got rescheduled, and let's just say, uh, for sake of argument, went to Schedule 2, what would change for all the dispensaries in California? Probably nothing, because they'd all still be federal, legal, non-FDA-approved products. But what we would see is an increasing ability of our own government to issue guidance. The EPA might be able to start to say, oh, it's not a Schedule One substance anymore. Maybe we can issue some pesticide guidance officially, right? Because right now, all pesticide use of cannabis, even if it's appropriate, safe, um, is illegal because it's a Schedule One substance. Uh, mandatory minimums, criminal penalties, access to banking. Um, some of these issues... Uh, might loosen up if, uh, you know, the where their wheels were greased by a change of scheduling status, but we still have a lot of work to do to harmonize that federal and state law. And so it's this weird area where we're on track to harmonize federal and state law. We have a couple of milestones to reach, but just because that's happening doesn't mean that international standards aren't going to be uh, becoming mandated in those states uh, that have cannabis programs. Well, um, since the standardization process is is so long, I'm actually quite relieved that there's already an international body who's getting started now so that by the time that we reschedule or deschedule, uh, there are standards that are already in place instead of starting that 20-year process whenever we get around <laughs> to descheduling, you know? So, um, well, thank you for being on the show, John. I know your, uh, your, um, your time is very valuable and uh, I appreciate you, uh, 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 coming on and sharing with us, uh, uh, these, these insider, uh, thoughts about how standardization is coming along and, and where it's headed. Well, thank you. It was really great to be able to, to share this information. And, um, you know, if, uh, if your listeners have a lot of questions, um, I'd be happy to answer them in a follow-up or, or written response to if, if people are interested in learning more. Right on. And, and, and folks who want to learn more, but they, they don't want to wait around for another episode, you can find out uh, more about the patient-focused certification at, creatively enough, patientfocusedcertification.org. Uh, also, if you want to find out more about uh, the events and going-ons for uh, safe access, for the Americans uh, for Safe Access, you can go to their website at safeaccessnow.org forward slash events. And, uh, and Jayhan is very active on Twitter. And so, uh, you know, if you've got a question in 140 characters or less, uh, you can feel free to reach out uh, to Jayhan on Twitter at uh, Jayhan Marku. And so that's at J-A-H-A-N-M-A-R-C-U. You can find more episodes of the Shaping Fire podcast and subscribe to the show at shapingfire.com and on Apple iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. If you enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a positive review of the podcast wherever you download. Your review will help others find the show so they can enjoy it too. 
On the Shaping Fire website, you can also subscribe to the weekly newsletter for insights into the latest cannabis news and product reviews. On the Shaping Fire website, you will also find transcripts of today's podcast as well. For information on me and where I'll be speaking, you can check out shangolos.com. Does your company want to reach our national audience of cannabis enthusiasts? Email hotspot at shapingfire.com to find out how. Thanks for listening to Shaping Fire. I've been your host, Shango Lose.